friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Today, we have a great lineup as we try to do every week. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, Father Dave Pivanka, who's the president of Franciscan University about gender ideology and his great piece in USA Today. Um, a very interesting piece in USA Today titled, The Body Matters. That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. But first... We turn to Jessica Houghton-Wilson. She's a professor of humanities and classical education at the University of Dallas. She has two books coming out next year, and she's here to give us a sneak peek of both of them and also the benefit of her very intelligent mind and her expansive vision, all about the classics and wonderful literature. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me on. So, Jessica, I have this impression of your work as, as someone who has a way of explaining how, how literature, how the novel can deepen for us our understanding of, of the great truths, and especially of the great Christian truths. Is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny to hear someone describe your work like it's this thing outside of you. It's kind of like when people talk about the tradition, like it's a, a handful of books you wrap up in a package and just mm -hmm. pass to the next person. But for me, it's just an outgrowth of I've always loved stories since I was a kid, and I've always been formed by them and shaped by them in my house. And so I've been sharing that passion in all the different forms that I can by writing about it, speaking about it, sharing it in a classroom. So it's really just about who I am as a person. And Jessica, right before we got on the phone on this on on this uh, interview, I was searching desperately through a Chester one of my Chesterton books. I think it's an orthodoxy where uh, Chesterton describes the novel as a Christian thing that it it happens because Christianity is romantic. There's because romance exists in Christianity, and then when that romance, that Christian romance, is written down, what it results in is a novel. Now, I'm not asking you to tell me where where that what page that is in orthodoxy. I don't know if that <laughs> if you remember reading some. Something like that, but does that make sense to you? Well, I don't know exactly where Chesterton would be talking about that, but the the idea of the stories that are found in Chesterton, right? The, the idea of the the ways that he came to know Christianity was through story, mm -hmm. and so even Orthodoxy, he says, he says this, uh, this is a memoir that is your is not a normal memoir because it's essentially also an argument, but it's not a normal argument, and he he interrelates those things in a way that imitates what Scripture itself is doing. It's a giant story that's also revealing to you the truth that you could actually write into claims, but it's telling you knowledge about the world and the story form. And so all of Christianity is just this great, massive story 
through which to see our reality. And so then every story that's responding to that is either true or false or good or beautiful based on that master story that's that's written into creation. Oh, that's a lovely way to th think about that. Why do you think that people, uh, men and women, do we are we able to to approach these great truths more easily through through novels? than we are maybe through um, through through metaphysical works or what do you think? Well, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in The Discarded Image in which he, he says that the medievals thought of a person in three concentric circles. The outer circle of a person was the imagination. The next level in was the intellect and the middle was the will. So you first began by how do you see things and then your intellect can analyze how you see those things. But first, it's just the senses. It's it's the way you approach the whole world by how you see and hear. I mean, that's why all through scripture it is, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear. We have to have this imagination that is porous, that allows us to, to see and hear reality as it is. And then we can analyze it and didactically talk about it. I and mean, this is the role of literary critics, right? You, you have the great stories that people read, and then you kind of walk people through what it is that they've read and that they can draw from. So I think the imagination is the first access point. It's the one that all of us know from the time we're children. It's the one that shapes who we are and how we have a vision of things. Jessica, you've got two books coming out next year, and we want to get to both of them. But let's start with The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. I'm especially really interested in this because I come from a great books background, um, oh. but, as, but at St. John's College, so it was secular. And so I'm always, I'm very interested in that sort of great books approach um, when it comes to, you know, more things that hint to the spiritual and Mm -hmm. uh, moral development as a Christian. And so this book really calls us to be the best versions of ourselves. And you pull from lots of different literature, but one of the books you um, pull from is Death Comes for, uh, for the Archbishop from Willa Cather. And can you tell us more about this especially? Sure. So I tried to consider what are those virtues that don't fit easily into an American identity Mm -hmm. um, as I've grown up with it and the, the conflation, I think, so much between our Christian identity and the American identity. And so there's a lot of that we've inherited that we're really comfortable with about being kind to one another. So I tried to look at virtues that we're not comfortable but they're still scriptural and they need to then override um, some of our sensibilities. So one of that being our lack of comfort with death, whereas the Christian tradition is rooted in like memento mori, like we're mm -hmm. going to die. And I think it's important for us as we make decisions about what the good life is to always have that mortality in front of us, right? But then of course, also the immortality afterwards, like we are souls that will not die, but we are creatures in this certain state right now that will and um, to always be reflecting on that so that we can be making these choices for how we're supposed to live and i think so death comes for the archbishop for example uh, you have this death comes so it sounds like it's gonna be this like mystery story mm -hmm. and it's hopefully it's gonna be like really exciting and yeah he doesn't die till the very end of the story it's really just right. about a good life what is a good life but she puts death in front of you from the moment you open the book and so you're thinking about what the good life is always with that end of death registering in your in your mind yeah i really like that because it reminds me actually of one of my tutors who is one of the sort of old school guys at St. John's that came from um, the University of Chicago, he always just said, you know, the job of St. John's College is to make you better human beings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so even in that secular sense, there was that classical 
idea of what these books were supposed to do for yes, you. Yes, and that's absolutely. exactly what you're doing. But in this Christian context, I just, I'm really, I'm really excited about it personally. <laughs> I think our viewers will be too. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, it's so much of my heart just poured into it because I, I think this is the point of life. And um, for me as a Christian, you know, what does it mean to be a human being? You can't understand without the human one, right? Without the mm-hmm. sense of God at the center of that conversation. No, absolutely. My experience has been that in that in novels is when I, when I touch most deeply and when I I, when I feel that I grasp deep spiritual truths that affect me and, and they keep affecting me and they, they stick with me and they, they, they and I mull over them because they come clothed in, in personalities and because they come clothed in drama and human interaction or at least very real on the page. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned virtues that we have discarded. And is that the way your book is arranged about different virtues? Because you mentioned the virtue of uh, remembering that our life is finite, that death comes for all of us. And another right. virtue that I think of all the time that we do encounter in novels, but we don't uh, as a good thing, but we don't often encounter it in, in, in our modern world is a virtue of obedience. Is there one that is there one of one of your uh, topics that you cover the virtue of obedience? Oh, no, but I wish I would have talked to you before I wrote this. The next book then. Yeah, right. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to get on that. You know, it's funny when I went through all the different virtues. Like there were so many that I thought, okay, I also would need to write about this. I would need to write about, um, you know, the Christian respect for age, both for children and, and the elderly, is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot that we need to. So there are all these virtues that I kept thinking. These are things that are particular to Christianity. Um, the ones that the ones that I forefronted for me were ones that came from books that I've just been teaching for years and loving. And in a sense, I think that obedience underlies all of it, but it's an obedience of the created order. You know, um, submit, maybe submission is a better way of, of referring to it. The way that I write about it is submitting to how you were made versus trying to make yourself. Realizing that there's an author of your story versus trying to write your own story. And yeah. so in that sense, I guess there is a submission to the authority that is the author of your life. Wow, that's very pregnant with meaning nowadays, Jessica. Uh, submitting to the way you were made. I can, that sort of, that rings like a, hear, a huge loud bell in my head, considering <laughs> what we're confront, confronting these days in, in human anthropology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are very into autonomy. Uh, you know, there's all these books. I mean, my first book was against this idea of the autonomous self, the authority of the autonomous self. And instead, recognizing that our limitations could be good things. I mean, this is a lot of the Catholic writers of the 20th century wrote about limitation in a beautiful way and instead of a negative way. And our current culture is all about conquering the limitations, exceeding the limitations, you know, living the impossible dream instead of recognizing limitations are a key to discernment. We've lost. If we don't see our limitations as guiding us toward a certain path, that's why we feel restless and directionless. We're not acknowledging those limitations as gates that are moving us towards the right doors. And isn't that sense of total autonomy, complete individuality, don't you think that that, is, that creates terrible anxiety in people? Like the, oh, the, the kind absolutely. The kind we see in, in when you're confronted by a long menu at a restaurant, several yeah. pages menu, <laughs> and you say, what yeah. in the world? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. You know, Walker Percy talks about this a lot in his own novels. His novels are the existential self just in complete crisis, where you, you have no idea what road to take. You don't know that you're even 
even a pilgrim on a road. You're just lost in the wilderness because you don't recognize the road. And I have a friend who wrote a book, I love the title, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble. And that title just kind of sums up the faith, right? Of course, it comes from scripture. But you're not your own, you belong to someone else. And once you admit that fact, suddenly the road, you know, each step may be a little bit more light on it. And it may be a little bit more clear the direction you're supposed to go. Yeah. Now, I mean, even to sometimes all this cancel culture going on and to even say that there is is a road or, you know, any sort of reference to teleology of a human being, um, it's really easy to become concerned consumed with false heroes and narratives. Mm-hmm. And and we have these literary traditions. I know that you did a really great job sticking up for Flannery O'Connor when that was <laughs> going going down. But how, I mean, you see this in your students. What what do these books and these literary traditions do that can bring how do they bring hearts and minds and souls and all that back to these more transcendental mm-hmm. uh, ideas of what of human flourishing. So one of the things that I used to teach for first year seminars for undergrads was a course that I said, you know, writing your own story. So I, I, I labeled it the way that it really drew Gen Z and millennials in the mm-hmm. conversation. <laughs> but, it, but what we started with was Augustine confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead it was learning what they eventually learned and covered in the course of reading confessions and then surprised by joy lewis is that god is writing their lives and they couldn't decide what century they were born in they didn't get to decide their gender they didn't get to decide who their parents were they didn't get to decide who their family members were they didn't get to decide what country they were born in like and suddenly they realized that trying to write the story of their lives all the things that god made the decisions already for them <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I think that stepping into this tradition of people trying to look at their lives this way, like they get to see that all of history is a story that started way before them that they're now participating in, and when their lives end, the story isn't over. There's mm-hmm. another story that continues beyond them, and so getting to see the tradition as this living thing in which, yes, their story has a part to play, but it's not the grand finale. It's just part of this very long story that God's telling, and I think the tradition reminds you of that. You you get to meet all of these people that have come before you, and there's just millions of them. And there's so many stories that are told, and then there are those that are untold that they get to discover. And I think that's a great part of this living tradition, this understanding of it as being something dynamic that you're stepping into and engaging with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host, Lee Sneed, and we have Professor Jessica Houghton wilson with us. She's from the University of Dallas, and she's discussing two great books that she has written. The second one is called Learning the Good Life, Wisdom from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. You know, talk, listening to you talk, Jessica, about these students that you're teaching and, and you direct them to where they are standing in relationship to their ancestral past, who, why they're standing in a certain place and time, a result of certain uh, genetic and uh, familial acts that, that result in them, and you're able to direct them into into thinking of how how wildly adventurous that is to think of yourself yeah. as as a product of, of fabulous people that have come before and you're living this great story yeah. that seems to me very romantic and much more romantic than to think of yourself as starting from scratch every time like every human being starts from scratch starts at zero is right. that how is that how your how your students were perceiving that oh absolutely I mean the way you're talking about it does sound like Chesterton it echoes of Chesterton you know the excitement for the two-year-old Chesterton right you know that the door opens. But imagine a world in which there are no doors because you have to create them to make them. And then when you make them, you already know what's behind them. The world is a, is a lot 
less enlivening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that less excitement when there's no mystery, when you're the only person involved in making the world. And so I love Chesterton's idea of these opening these doors, seeing what's around the corner. It's it's life as a discovery. It's uh, what Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity, right? I mean, it's this wonderful path in which you you try to follow those who came before you, but they came before you. <laughs> so it's this mm-hmm. mysterious, uh, paradoxical reality where, where anything can happen and, and yet the more you step on the right stones you get to a greater destination you know than when you fall on your way and uh, so I think it's I love thinking of reality and that's it so with, with that mystery and that adventure some people are afraid to pick up novels some good Christians some people people who are trying to be careful of what they read because it might it might lead them down bad paths or wrong ways of thought and I'm I'm the first one to say that I'm not I'm not making fun of that because I'm very careful what I ingest mm-hmm. right, right. In, in literature and movies and all that what would you say to people like that who want to who want to deepen themselves d- deepen their understanding in, of literature and and drink from you know the founts of literature but without uh, getting themselves sort of in the mire of things Amit Majmudar wrote this poem called Reading it is beautiful it's dedicated to Jorge Luis Borges oh yeah the reason the reason I love it as a way of starting with this question is he he talks about I stand before books as I stand before the night sky and the books are these infinities that are all demanding to be explored but I don't have a map and I don't have a guide then the blind librarian comes and he takes my hand and I suddenly feel secure knowing where to look and all the stars open into suns and it's it's this we've lost the understanding of reading as a communal activity and that's one of the reasons i think that it frightens people because you don't know what book to choose you know like you said a second ago with the limitless list of options and so you're afraid to to choose a book you're afraid to ask because isn't isn't it supposed to be about preference isn't it supposed to be about taste and what you enjoy and what you prefer but it's not Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know reading for thousands of years was about someone showing you what to read, telling you what to read, how to read, telling you how to read. Most of education was telling you how to read and how to engage with the text. And so we've lost this sense that reading should be about the masters, those who have loved the books, who know which books to read, helping the novices walk through that process so that eventually the novices then become the masters for others. I think we don't need to be afraid if we're considering reading that way. It should not be this isolated is this for my own pleasure? But if it's for my own pleasure, are my pleasures going to lead me awry? And instead consider reading with guides and reading with others and reading in community and looking for that advice for how to read well. And I love this idea of librarian, like Beatrice. It's like, so beautiful. Th- that poem, it's beautiful. It's funny. I have a soft spot for Borges because my dad was an English professor and one of his treasured possessions was a photograph of Borges uh, desk lecturing in his class. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. It was like a so cool. So, and he actually was sort of like my guide through books before I got to St. John's. He was always handing me things to read and things he thought were, you know, appropriate. And I remember things like The Awakening and, yes. you know, just things like that when you're a teenage girl. It's just like, oh, this whole world out there. And of course, yes. you know, the Lost Generation writers, of course, appeal to you. And so I, I felt ready and not ready for St. John's. But because you start off with Day Anima, and I'm like, what did I do? This is in English. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you don't, but you don't just include literature in, in your books. You, you do the whole canon and right. you bring it in. And what I really like, actually, for me, as I've become, well, great book speak, right? A more advanced student, even though I'm not technically a student anymore. And I'm allowed to read outside resources and read the letters of Flannery O'Connor and mm-hmm. realize and sort of read the more gossipy things about who was friends with whom and who proofread whose books. And what I find now is that I read one novel and then I re- it leads me mm-hmm. to other books because of the references in it I have to look that up and then I find that and the book themselves and obviously that works better when they're contemporaries of each other do you do like what's the uh, plant the layout of your book is it chronological or do you go by themes or how does it how does are that, we talking that? About the scandal of holiness or? we are talking about um learning, learning the, the good life. life learning the good life the second one sorry I should so, that. <laughs> my publishing life is so weird I like have these like three or four year breaks and then I put out three books at one time yeah <laughs> learning the good life is chronological the theme that kind of ties the reflections or the introductions, the exordiums between each text together is what does it mean to learn as a Christian? So this goes back to the the idea of, you know, the tradition, the practices Mm -hmm. of piety by which to approach a text. Because if you approach text as a minor trying to pull whatever gems you think are worthwhile, like you could just be pulling a bunch of rocks and and dust out of um, the text itself and not get what the text is trying to do. And so we, we talk about the virtues of reading you know, the ways of approaching text through the text themselves. So the exodium kind of shows you, it guides you. It's it's that librarian that says, like, look here. And then you read the excerpt following it, and then there's discussion questions. And so we collected professors across the country from all different traditions, and even some of my friends who are teachers but who are not in the university system, and uh, asked them, like, what texts you know, if, if the world was ending, what is the small mm. excerpt that you want to make sure the next generation doesn't lose? And so, and I wanted, I wanted the book to be a lot more expansive than I think a lot of these readers have been in the past. We, we've had um, probably more of a canon that had this majority, um, you know, very male, white, Western, mm. just at the heart of things, because that was what we were used to and that was passed down to us. But the more that I've been in graduate school and out of grad, grad school and getting to hear some of these voices I had never heard before, yeah. and you know, discovering Marjorie Kemp and discovering Julian of Norwich and discovering Perpetua and Testimony, and these are things I just never had access to. And so we made sure that we were showing everyone that was at the table, right, and um, trying to be as hospitable to this feast of discourse throughout the tradition as we could be. So, so the book moves all the way from I think it's like Confucius to Toni Morrison essentially. Oh I love it and I love the idea of the conversation notes because post pandemic it's exactly what everybody's wanting and is it something you could do you could pick you wouldn't have to do the whole book you could just pick a chapter to read with your friends and yes, are they, they self contained? Yes absolutely and that, that's one of the reasons we did it too I, you know I have the privilege right now of traveling to lots of classical schools and mostly who I talk to are not students I'm talking to parents <laughs> mm-hmm. the parents are thinking like I know that I should choose this education and write books for my kids, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read Homer, never read Shakespeare, and I, I cannot keep up with my child. And so this is also one of those books where you could you could do a section of it at dinner together mm-hmm. and you could just enjoy reading parts of it aloud and asking questions and having dinner table conversation I mean, we very intentionally put a big table on the front of the book and showed all these friends dining around it on our cover to say like to suggest that like, this is what intellectual life should look like it should look like a table it should look very relaxed 
and enjoyable. This is not an elitist thing that belongs in the academy. These are the texts that, that make us and that should be shaping our culture. I like this, Jessica, because I think in the absence of literature, what takes the place for that kind of interaction and back and forth is politics, which is not, you know, which is can be very divisive and can cause a lot of anxiety because of, you know, if, if your guys in, in power right now or your, your, your political, whoever you think is correct. Um, I like the, I like the idea of having a book like yours as, as a point of departure for, for wonderful conversation. Well, and it's also about permanent things. You know, you don't have to feel like if you're talking about justice in Aristotle, that he's going to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, whereas if you talk about justice according to the current headline or the current political party, that has a temporary label on it, right? It's going to expire as a conversation pretty quick. So these kind of conversations will last forever, right? Your understanding of Aristotle's justice you'll return to over and over and over again. You can't finish it. I read a, I read a little quote from Confucius the other day by chance and I sent it to my, I have two children now who are married and it said something like it is the duty of children to give grandchildren to their parents. <laughs> And I thought, wow, what an incredibly intelligent man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was listening to Sarah this morning that was talking about if you want to be honored, honor your father, your father and mother. I thought, oh, yeah, that's I mean, that is the way that this works. Like, it's just revealing. This is how the world is, right? Mm -hmm. These things that tell us the truth. And there's so much out there to to delve into. I think that your students are very lucky, Jessica, to have you as a teacher. It sounds like you're somebody who who has a, a very big mind and a very big heart oh, oh thank you yes and I you know I I love the connection between the two to me it should be I worked at John Brown University for years and I loved their motto um heart head and hand oh, right? nice. all of those go together to, to make us who we are I, I really love that and can, can you tell me all I could think of was all the different families I want to give this book to as a Christmas present but the <laughs> publishing the publish date isn't until the spring is that right right Right. So, um, so next Christmas. Holiness is March, and then um, in May it is uh, Learning the Good Life. And going back to your Holiness book, Jessica, why you said in March? What the Holiness in book? March. It's in March. Okay. And who who is the focus of that book? Like, who do you who do you envision as a as a great uh, reader for that book? Well, you know, you were just talking about politics, and I think that's actually a good reference point because our political culture really demands that we we use whatever means we can towards what we think is a good end, even though it's an impermanent end, right? And so we're willing to completely adjust our motivations and our actions for anything. So I'm hoping that my book is really for the church to remind us that the political sphere is not the sphere that we ultimately belong to. Mm-hmm. And we might have to be, as you know, Russell Moore would say, like, we might have to be defensive within that sphere to protect religious liberty. But that's only so we can reinvest in the church and go back to what it looks like as a community to strive after holiness. So my book is, is very much for the church. I'm hoping that people are going to read it in Bible studies and start bringing literature into the, their Sunday school classes. And that this is the kind of book that will replace, you know, talking about the pop lit, you know, at your local book club. Instead, maybe I can imagine in part be a blind librarian and say, here are some of the books that I would recommend you read. Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect guy, Jessica, and I, I thank <laughs> you. I thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us, and and we hope that, that your books will achieve great success and lead a lot of uh, hearts and minds to the truth and ultimately to God. So thank you for being with us today, Jessica.
to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father Dave. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, we can't thank you enough for giving us some of your precious time. You have a very important position, and I'm sure that every second of your day is accounted for as president (laughs) of... Franciscan University. It must be very hard to get a moment, but but oh, you're giving us. It really is. Oh, thank you. You're giving us some of your moments, and really, we wanted to talk to you because you wrote um, a very interesting piece in USA Today, titled "The Body Matters." That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. Now, we we thought that as a university president, you are on the front lines of this Mack truck of gender ideology, which is mowing down everything in front of it, but especially in, in academia and in schooling for young people. And so we were really interested in your take. Well, you're right. It is. Uh, it seems to be a train that's moving, and honestly, it's just running over over people. In this particular situation, I think it's uh, running over women. And and it's interesting. I mean, the story is, I tell the story of one of our female athletes here at the Franciscan University, and she's just a phenomenal athlete. And I was just watching her one day, and she was training, and and just began to wonder, you know, what's this going to look like in another couple of years? There are situations of biological men who are uh, participating in in female sports, and it just there's just something wrong with it. But but actually, honestly, truth be told, uh, she and I first started talking about this over a year ago about saying something and and writing something. And I'm going to be very honest with you: is I was concerned uh, for her. Is that we live in a world that's so volatile, and you're you're right that train is going down the track and then, and it'll run over whoever gets in the way and i was honestly concerned about what would it look like for her to compete would would people do things to her would people say things to her and and because boy you can't you can't disagree with that you can't hold another opinion on this topic or you're the enemy and and they'll do whatever they need to do to to try to silence them and and, and at the end of the story is is her looking i always say looking up at me because she's about five foot nothing uh, and she says to me, Father Dave, we have to say something. Some things are more important than racing. And and that's why when this whole situation came out uh, with the athlete from Penn, it seemed to me, all right, this is this is the time that we need to say something. So that's why we did. But Father, um, you bring up a point about being canceled and being aggressed for expressing an opinion that doesn't go along with um, the current ideologies. But what about, Are you wor- does she worry about her life after competition, how she can get a job, if she becomes notorious, because this is what I'm hearing from uh, young people like I, I have one, co- I have one, one of my five children is in college now. He says people are very afraid for their future if they get blackballed in college or talked about in college for being um, conservative in any way. Right, right. Well, and again, her, her statement was, we need to stand up. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a girl, it's just honestly, again, she's one of the top athletes in the country. And this is simply consistent with who she is. And that's she's tough. She's scrappy. She's not afraid to, to work and get dirty and pull up her sleeves. And, and, and she just sees this fight as a part of it. And my hope, honestly, is it is that it really doesn't become a fight for her, you know, it, it's not, unfortunately, it's not her fight. She's just placed, she's been placed in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Father, I've written a book about this, um, and, you know, I devoted an extensive section to it about women's sports, and this was five years ago, and it's been incredible to see how quickly this has all accelerated, and, 
in your article, you, you know, make the point that Title IX was designed to protect women's sports and to create a space where women can, you know, compete and showcase their skills against other women. And so, you know, this is really showing how gender ideology especially hurts women. Um, And I also thought you did a great job in your piece of, you know, pointing out the need to be sympathetic to people who are truly experiencing genuine confusion and who couldn't in this crazy culture. Um, Are you seeing this play out on your campus in ways other than sports or, or is it mostly an athletics issue? Well, it's a moment it's across. It's not just, well, first off, I would say bigger picture, it's the identity of the human person. And that's really what I want to try to get across is, is the human person is beautiful. Uh, it should be honored. It should be, we should be awed by that. And it's not just the gender identity where the attack on the human person is taking place. I mean, today with all that's taking place with the abortion Roe versus Wade, there's always, you know, for decades, there's been an attack on the human person. And, and it's not just gender identity. It's what a person should look like. And so we're seeing that across the board. Um, are there, uh, Athletes here that have have been a part of this because they're competing, yes, um, yes, that they've competed against other athletes who are transgendered athletes. Do we have young people who are wrestling with who are they? One of the things I've, I've shared a lot recently is, you know, when we were younger, we asked the question, "Who am I?" But the kids are asking the question, "What am I?" And that's a fundamental different question that it, that relates to them trying to be comfortable with who they are and who it is that God's created them to be. So, yes, our, our kids are walking out of situations in their high schools and in their communities where they're, this is in the front of them, it's constantly bombarding them. And yes, we have kids that are wrestling with this and asking the questions. And, and my hope and my prayer, honestly, is that is that we can help them work through this and help them walk through this and wrestle with it, where the vast majority of people in our culture today says, oh, you have a question? Well, here's your solution. You know, take, these, take this medicine or believe this thing that's I believe is ultimately a lie. So we're we're trying to do our best to equip our young people and our students to really to be able to deal with this and reconcile who they are and who God created them to be. Father, Father, what I find uh, when when I'm when I talk to young people, which I do very very often on this topic. Um, in fact, when we finish here, I'm going to go teach a CCD class <laughs> exactly on this topic for for young teens. And um, what what I'm finding when I speak to them is that there's this opposition between the truth. For instance, that a man cannot become a woman by simply declaring himself a woman or by doing any kind of hormonal or surgical alteration. That's the truth that I think all of us can agree on. And then there is the, the, this, this deep necessity that's been instilled in everyone to never hurt anyone's feelings. And, and that's, what I, that's the feedback I'm getting from students, from young people who say, sure. I can understand that it's not true that a man can become a woman. And that I can, and I can see that it's unjust that a man swimmer should swim against women and demolish them and call himself a woman at the same time. But I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. What would you say to that to young people? Well, it's it, and, and that's where this really becomes problematic is that those two things are ultimately inconsistent. That that you're not going to be able to speak the truth, and people are people are going to be offended by the truth. I, I gave a talk on campus the other night. The scripture last. Thursday, maybe it was Wednesday, was from John. It's a, it's a famous John 3 where for God to love the world. But John goes on to say that people preferred the dark. Mm-hmm. And, and that, unfortunately, that's still the case. So that honestly, as, as I've wrestled with this, that's one of the things that I've, I've struggled with is that I know that when I wrote that article and put it out, that there are people that were going to be hurt by it. 
and re- I, I think I think I wrote it fairly sensitively, but I still know that there were going to be people hurt by it. And that's one of the things that some of the comments that people have made. It's like, well, why is Father Dave entering into this dialogue? You know, why is Francis University even commenting on this? Well, because, as you stated earlier, that, that there are some things that are true. And, and as, as Allison said, some things that are worth fighting for and just believe that the time was now that we needed to ultimately say something. And, and just if I may, at that moment, because one of the things that I'm, I'm joking, my next op-ed piece is going to be writing an op-ed piece on writing an op-ed piece, because to be able to have that printed in USA Today was, you know, a major undertaking. And, and some of the things that were required was some of the language. Like, if you'll notice, USA Today has a policy that you cannot use the word biological male. They find that offensive. So we had to be able to, to work with USA Today to even get that article published. But it, it speaks to a population of people that simply doesn't have ears to hear. You know, if the word biological male is offensive, then what are we doing? We have we have to be able to speak the truth. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I feel like, like Allison has been bullied. And I feel like some of the people that have been speaking out is have been bullied. But we live in a world in an age that you're right. You can't speak out. You can't say something. And if you if you do, you're you're a bully. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're a homophobic. You're all of those things that that label us. And by labeling us, trying to shut off the discussion. And I mean, one of the points I come to is 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 this inability to disagree. Now, your point is well taken. That if we don't believe things are true, or if I believe I am the, the determining factor of what's true, that's why these issues become so volatile. Is that we're ultimately challenging them. We're not challenging an objective reality. We're, we're challenging them. And that's part of the problem that we have, I think, in this whole conversation. Shocking to hear that they won't allow the use of the expression biological male. And yet I shouldn't be shocked because I've recently seen things like religious freedom and scare quotes. So we are in strange times indeed. Father, you know, as a Catholic priest, you are more well-versed than most in terms of the richness that the church has to offer when it comes to complementarity of the sexes and, and thinking, you know, the thinking the church has put into this. Um, And I have to say as a convert, it was reading theology of the body that really was something that drew me in. And I think there's a sense that there's a fear that speaking truthfully repels people, but is it your experience that speaking the truth can also draw people in? And I'm curious to know, you know, apart from you writing a very brave piece in USA Today, what else is your university doing to sort of be both, you know, gentle but courageous on this matter and, and other difficult matters of truth? I, I appreciate your comment on theology of the body, because I think if you read that piece, you realize that while I didn't come out and say John Paul II, theology of the body, it's at the heart of it. The body actually does matter. The human body communicates just by its its physicalness. So a human male and a human female communicate differently just because an individual's mind is telling them something. The body still communicates. And, and that's one of the things I was trying to get across, that the body matters. I mean, at the university, that that we've made a commitment time and time again, and and I told the students when I preached on this topic Friday night that that we are going to be faithful to the gospel, and we're going to be faithful to the teachings of the church, and we're going to communicate those things. And if that puts us at odds with culture, so be it. Now, I also have said that St. Francis, some of the things that he did in his time put him at odds, so that we're going to do it with charity, and we're going to do it with humility. 
but we are going to speak the truth. And and I think the the mandate of the gospel demands that we do that. And but again, I, I don't. I, the scripture reminds us that that the world hated him first. And the scripture reminds us that things that Jesus said, and scriptures come up and they said, what you said offended us. So some of the things we do and some of the things we say are going to offend people. We need to do our best to do it in charity and and to recognize, you know, the human person in front of us. But sometimes it demands that we speak out. And, and the university has been doing that on pro-life issues. We've been doing it on pro-family issues. We've been doing it on, you know, issues related to the poor and access to education. So th- this one is, is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more inflamed, but uh, yeah, I just think it's what the Lord wants us to do, to be able to speak to the things that are, are objectively true. And to the degree that we're communicating that, ultimately, my hope is that it leads the individual to the source of that truth, right? Not just to an argument or not just to a well-written piece, but to the source of truth that ultimately will bring greater clarity and peace to this whole issue. Father, you've been the president of the university since 2019, um, so it's been a very tumultuous and strange couple of years on many yes, fronts. It has. Yes, <laughs> what have been some of the other top challenges that you've had to deal with, or, or what are some of your other sort of greatest concerns or, or even triumphs um, over the last couple of years and even looking into the future? Yeah, well, sure. I, th- I think obviously the, the COVID crisis and COVID situation was something uh, that, that's that been unbelievably challenging. The image that I've used, it's it's like trying to juggle sand. But I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are, but one of the things that we did at Francis University was the, the fall semester of 2020 when everybody was trying to figure out, you know, COVID was still re- relatively new. What were we going to do? Francis University made a decision to invite all new students, all freshman students to the university uh, tuition free because there was a real step in faith at that time. People just didn't know what this was going to look like. So I said that, you know, we're in, we're making a step in faith that everything's going to go okay and, and work out all right. So we invited the students to make that with us. And, and it was received, as you can imagine, wonderfully that we've got the most students we've ever had on campus right now. But I think part of that was an uh, invitation to not be consumed by fear. You know, I think, I think we took COVID seriously, and and we took precautions, but we also were not going to be paralyzed by fear. And and to be able tomorrow, I'm actually the the stage is right outside my window. We're going to have a celebration mass tomorrow. In in an essence, this the end of the pandemic and opening up a new chapter uh, for where the Lord is leading us. So that that's obviously was a serious serious issue. But the other part is just providing an opportunity for young people. I think one of the things that they crave most is relationship and community. So making sure that we provide an an environment where young people can come together, they can be challenged in in their intellectual endeavors, but then they can do that in a community that is faith-based. Christ is in the center. The beauty of the church is proclaimed. So that's, I mean, I've got, there there are days that are really, really difficult, and there are days that are stressful, but I'm just looking out my window right now, and I'm seeing young people walk back and forth to class, and it's a beautiful spring day. It's it's a great blessing to be able to be a part of this. On the one hand, Father, you, you have tremendous challenges, on the other hand, you have something that supports you that's, that I would think it's only a handful of university presidents have, which is a full, a full embrace of, of the Catholic, of our Catholic faith and, and our Catholic values and our beautiful philosophy that is, that is so yeah. placed on truth. Most people don't have this who are in your exalted position, Father. No, I, and that's why, again, I'm so blessed 
to be, you know, to, to be the president of a university, but to be a president of this Franciscan Catholic University, where we have a theology department, philosophy, and professors that that embrace the truth and the beauty of the church. We have four masses a day on weekdays that are the chapel, the kids. You know, I, the, the, the mass I'm always most impressive is 6.30 in the morning. All right, you're on a college campus, and you go to mass at 6.30 in the morning, and you find a couple hundred kids <laughs> on the mass before they go to class. I mean, I get to be a part of that. I'm I'm so, so blessed and, and humbled by our faculty and our staff and our students. I really am. Well, Father, may, may God continue to bless your work, and thank you for, for being so brave and penning that piece in USA Today. Our listeners can, can find it. Um, under his name, Dave Pavanka, and and may God continue to help you in this in this great charge that He gave you. Okay, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spend some time with you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when He'll tell us the incredible gift God the Father wants to give us and what we need to do to obtain that gift. But then he will make plain to us the practical choices we need to make to seize that blessing. And the whole gospel hinges on whether we will be faithful and prudent stewards who do so, or unfaithful and imprudent ones who don't. Let's enter enter into this dramatic conversation. Everything begins with Jesus' extraordinary words. Your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. God the Father wants to give us his kingdom in this world and forever. Doing so, Jesus says, will give the Father great joy. He tells us, therefore, don't be afraid any longer. Sometimes he knows we're afraid of God. We're afraid of displeasing him. We're afraid of our weaknesses and our capacity to choose against him, others and ourselves. We're afraid of the eternal consequence of our sinful choices. But Jesus encourages us not to be afraid because his Father is delighted to give it all to us shown in his sending his son into the world to announce to us that the kingdom is at hand, to teach us how to enter that kingdom, and at great personal cost, to lead us like the good thief into it. Jesus wants us to be as happy about receiving that kingdom as God the Father is to give it. That's why he tells us that we need to let go of a desire to build our own material fiefdoms here on earth and use everything we have to obtain God's true kingdom. Sell your belongings and give alms, he says. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out in an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach nor moth destroy. The way to seize the kingdom is through Christ-like charity, to use the money we have, the time we have, the goods we have, to lift others up. To love in this way is like transferring all we have to a celestial bank account that can never be taxed, where it will form an inexhaustible treasure that will never stop giving dividends. But Jesus wants us to make a choice as to whether we're going to build up this heavenly treasure or like the fool in last Sunday's gospel, seek to build up towers for our grain and wealth here on earth. For where your treasure is, he tells us, there also will your heart be. Is our heart really in God, in his kingdom, and in his eternally secure treasure? Or is it in this fleeting world? If our heart really is in God, Jesus next tells us how to prove it. He tells us, gird your loins and light your lamps and be like servants who await their master's return from a wedding, ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Jesus wants us to be vigilant, alert, hungry for him. 
to light our lamps like the wise virgins Jesus described in a parable in St. Matthew's Gospel, ready always for his return, to gird our loins like the Jews in the desert, ready to run out to meet and embrace him. A little later in the parable, Jesus drives home the point with two other images. One is of a security guard. Be sure of this, he says, if the master of the house had known the hour when the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Jesus wants us to be as alert to his joyful arrival as a shepherd is for the advance of wolves who want to attack his flock, or a father is to protect his people and property in his house. The second image is of a steward. Who then, Jesus states, is the faithful and prudent steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to distribute the food allowance at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master on his arrival finds already doing so. Jesus wants us to be that faithful and prudent steward, distributing what he has put at our disposal for the care of others. Notice the tense of the verbs Jesus employs. He will put in charge the one he finds already doing so voluntarily. He doesn't want us to wait for an official appointment. He wants us caring for others now. That's what it means to be faithful, prudent, and stewardly. Jesus adds in words that could apply to both images. And should he come in the second or third watch and find them prepared in this way, blessed are those servants. The Jewish night was broken down into four watches, or four three-hour periods, 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and 3 to 6 a.m. Jesus is communicating that if he finds us vigilant for him with the lamp of our heart burning, loins girt, ready to greet him, and generously sharing his blessing, even at night when we and others are tired, even when most others aren't even watching, how much more blessed we'll be. Because we'll really be showing that charity is not some quid pro quo that we do because we have to or are looking for a reward, but has become so much a part of our nature that we do it even when we're tired. But that's not the only response Jesus describes. There are those who don't light their lamps, who don't gird their loins, but who take off their sandals. There are those who don't distribute God's blessings to others, but who instead think he's long delayed, begin to eat, drink, and get drunk, and beat and abuse others. These are the unfaithful and prudent stewards. These are the co-conspirators of the thieves. These are the ones who will be, Jesus says, with images I don't think I need to interpret, beaten severely and assigned a place with the unfaithful. It's a sad possibility of human freedom that people to whom God wants to give the kingdom can respond to his offer in such a way. It begins by placing our heart not in God and eternal treasure, but in the pleasures of this life and the things of this world. That leads to the corruption of the heart, such that it becomes drowsy rather than vigilant, lazy rather than prompt, drunk rather than sober, evil rather than generous, stupid rather than smart, and unfaithful rather than true. Which set of adjectives and actions best describe us? What about in the second or third watch of the night? Is our heart really in God or somewhere else? Are we really doing what he asks us? Or do we wait until he or others seem to start paying attention? There are two objections that come up in the conversation. The first is from Peter who queries, Lord, is this parable for us or for everyone? The question implies that he thought that the apostles might be exempt from what Jesus was teaching. Many times we can listen to Jesus' words and immediately apply them to others rather than ourselves. In my priestly work, I'm often approached by people who ask me to preach or write an article about X or Y, not because they need help in that particular area, but because they think a family member or a friend or someone at whom they're wagging a finger needs to hear it. 
But we need to learn the lesson. All of sacred scripture applies to each of us. Perhaps some passages are more obviously relevant to some disciples rather than others, but none of us is exempt from any and all applications. Every parable is meant for us and for everyone, including what Jesus is communicating to us this weekend. Those of us who, like the apostles, may be more known for following Jesus, striving to live by his teaching and spread love of him, rather than being exempt, are called to be examples. That leads to the second objection. We might think that even though we are not exempt, there are others who need to listen to Jesus' words more carefully and follow them more assiduously. In terms of being faithful and prudent stewards, for example, we may think it applies more toward bishops, priests and religious, teachers, business owners and parents than to us. In terms of being vigilant for the master's arrival, we might think that it really focuses on those who are advanced in years or facing a life-threatening diagnosis. In terms of converting for placing our treasure in things that thieves can pilfer and moths destroy, we might deem that those words pertain far more to those far richer than we are. But at the end of this Sunday's passage, Jesus says not, much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and little will be demanded of the person entrusted with little. Rather, he says, much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more. The point is that we've all been entrusted with lavish gifts filled overflowing. Others may have more than we think we have, but each of us has still been blessed with a great deal. While others may be multi-billionaires, we're still millionaires. And God wants us to spend what he's given. Much is demanded of us. He wants us to use everything we have, not to eat, drink, and get drunk, not for our own aggrandizement, but to make money bags containing an inexhaustible treasure that will not wear out. Jesus has given us the resource, the time, and the trust we need, rather than making excuses or thinking ourselves somehow exempt. He wants us to purify our hearts, light our lamps, gird our loins, and distribute his blessings. If we do so, Jesus promises an extraordinary reward. He says he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. That is what he did for the apostles during the Last Supper as he fed them with his own body and blood. And that's what he promises to do for us at the eternal wedding banquet. God the Father indeed is pleased to give us the kingdom. And he shows how pleased he is by giving us the King of Kings as our food even here on earth. Let us lift up our hearts to the Lord and place our treasure where our hearts are. May this Sunday's celebration of the Holy Eucharist increase our faith in God's promises and our desire to be as prudent and faithful stewards so that we might come through a life of vigilant, prompt charity to their eternal fulfillment with him in heaven. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 